Uh, Ali, it's, uh, it's great that uh, reading has been done twice today, and it's been done beautifully twice. Uh, it's great to have it before us. If you can keep it open, uh, that would be really helpful. That's where I'm going to be spending the majority of my uh, time tonight. And so uh, if you can keep that open, that'd be great. I'm going to ask God to help us, and then we'll dive into our fifth sermon in this series, Lord, Please Make My Church. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're here tonight. Thank you that your word is living and active by virtue of your spirit. So, Father, come and use him now to challenge and change us to be more like Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. All right. Well, I I want to start tonight by bringing you a magician and an atheist. Uh, Not very often that you get a magician and an atheist in a church service, And uh, probably not with uh, my endorsement of what they're saying. That probably doesn't happen very often uh, either. So do you know uh, Penn and Teller? Do you know who they are? This is a fascinating quote that I came across a little while ago. Um, And I wanted to let uh, Mr. Penn speak. I think it's a stunning quote. He says, if there's a truck bearing down on you, at a certain point I will tackle you. He says, and this is more important than that. If you really believed it, wouldn't you say? Now, that's a good question. If you really believed it, wouldn't you share it? And so what we're going to do tonight is I want you to consider, what do you really believe? Do you really believe this? Or is this something that you've heard or you've been exposed to or you kind of, what do you really believe? And I'm going to get you to explore that with me by thinking about what we really believe, and I want you to see, do they line up? Is this you? Is this what you believe yourself? Because the challenge from our atheist magician is, if you really believe it, you'll do something with it. So let's see what it is uh, that we really believe. Well, we'll start with something a little bit softer than the atheist magician. How's that sound, hey? So here's a baby. Uh, Who remembers their birth? No, good. Uh, Who remembers somebody coming into their family in a birth? I I, I remember my two children uh, coming into my family. Gracious me, I was on the watching side, obviously. Uh, I had a pretty hectic time. I can only imagine what it was like on the other half of that equation. Um, uh, It's a thing, you know. I just stand in awe of um, women who bring beautiful children into the world. I, I just think it's the most extraordinary thing ever. Uh, If you had to do it once, uh, I can assure you, having been there, you wouldn't do it twice. Uh, And yet that's exactly what Jesus says needs to happen. We're going to go to that passage in John, and we're going to see Jesus speaking with a man called Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is one of the rulers uh, of the Jewish Jewish group in uh, Jerusalem, and he's come to Jesus at night because we suspect he's a little afraid. He doesn't want other people to know that he's come to Jesus. And so this is kind of a little conversation on the side uh, in private. And uh, we'll see what Jesus and he talk about here in verses 3 to 8. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, I would suggest it's not just Nicodemus saying, surely you can't be serious that a man has to go back into his mother's womb. I assume the mother would be thinking something similar as well. Don't want to do that. That would not be good. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't have have that in mind at all. He says that there are two kinds of birth. Two kinds of birth. He says flesh gives birth to flesh. So a body will give birth to a body. But he says if you want to be equipped to see and enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born spiritually. You need to be born spiritually. The second birth isn't another entry into the world, but it is a new birth for your soul. So Jesus says you need to be born of water and the Spirit. And I suspect he's referring to baptism here, that you're baptized and then the Holy Spirit comes and enters you. So you're born of water and the Spirit. And he says that this makes you ready for the kingdom life. If you're not born of water and the Spirit, he says, you are not equipped to enter into the kingdom of God. And so he says to Nicodemus, who's confused as he could possibly be, you must be born twice. You must be born again of the Spirit. Now, does anyone know what kind of uh, snake this is? I'm sorry, anyone? A big green one, yes, largely true. Uh, it is a green tree python. I'm reliably informed by Jody this morning, so I can state my, my knowledge. A green tree python. Uh, this is probably not the, uh, the snake that was in mind, but I want to take you, to, in order to understand what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, I want to take you back to a part of the Old Testament, uh, a place called Numbers, a book of the Bible called Numbers. The people of Israel have been traveling around in the desert, You remember they got to the promised land and they made a mess of going into it. So God said, no, you can't come in. You'll need to go and wander in the desert for 40 years until all those who are unfaithful have died out. They then made an attempt to come back to start going into the promised land again. And they're a whingy lot. And so they've started to whinge. I want to show you what happens in Numbers 21 verses 6 to 9 because it's pretty unusual. uh, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many among them, uh, 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 venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. And put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It is a truly bizarre story. It is not a normal story. This is not a thing that normally happens in the Bible. And so, what's the thing? Being bitten by venomous snakes, they're dying. And and God says, don't worry, Moses, I've got something for you. Make a bronze snake. Incidentally, I don't know how long that takes. But I don't imagine you do that really quickly. Incidentally, that, that... I just overthink things, right? Anyway, bronze snake, put it on a post, raise the post up in the middle of the camp, and if you're bitten, what you need to do is look to the snake and you'll be all fine. No problems. And so here it is, this unusual story in Numbers says, look and live. If you listen to God and you look, you will live. You will be saved from your snake bite. And now you're thinking, what on earth does that have to do with Jesus and Nicodemus? Let's go all the way back to John 
chapter 3, and I want you to see how this little piece of uh, the Old Testament now will make some more sense for us. In John chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15, we hear Jesus alluding to what happened uh, just there. He says, Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, quick quiz, uh, New Life at Night. Who is the Son of Man? Okay, great. Very good. You're with me. Oh, incidentally, we've got Q&A after this, so if I don't make sense at any point, you can ask me questions. Remember that we've got Q&A coming up. So Jesus says, just like the snake was lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Jesus is making a prophecy here to Nicodemus about how he is going to die. Now, we always read the Gospels knowing the ending at the start, don't we? None of us read the Gospels not knowing what happens at the end. Well, maybe very few of us do. And so here's Jesus saying something incredibly obvious about the cross, but just let you on a little thing. He hasn't died yet. So he's saying to Nicodemus, just like that snake, so too I'm going to be lifted up. How will Jesus be lifted up? He'll be lifted up on the cross. We will, we will look to Jesus, we'll believe, and we will live. So Jesus lifted up on the cross it's on the cross and after his death that Jesus is lifted up. He's lifted up on the cross to die. And then after he's been raised to life, where else is Jesus lifted up to? He's lifted up to the right hand of his Father in heaven. So God, Jesus is there saying, just like this random story in the Old Testament, one day I'm going to be lifted up. That was a model for you to understand. When you look, you will live. And now he's saying with himself, if you look to me, you will live. It's by faith that you will be saved. Uh, now, this next bit is, is very important for everyone. D does everyone know about uh, the five love languages? Oh, I hear some chuckling. Jackie, you know about the five love languages. That's good. Uh, does anyone else know about the five love languages? Can we name them? Sorry? Yes? Uh, acts of service? Time, words of affirmation? Gifts, have I missed one? Physical touch, fantastic. And the only reason anyone's missed that is because it wasn't their gift, that, that was the thing that they liked. So here's the interesting thing. The, the idea of the love languages is you're probably loving someone with your love language. Okay? And you're going, so say your love language is words of affirmation. Okay? So you're saying to your significant person in your life that you want to show love to, you're fabulous. You know, I really love you. I care about how you X, Y, and Z. And then you go out and you do something else. If their love language is not words of affirmation and you take off after just laying out all the love in the world, they're a quality time person, right? And they're going, so you just say some words to me and you jet off. That's no good. And the other person's thinking, oh, I totally love them today. I gave them words of affirmation. So what we need to do is you need to work out who the person you're trying to love, what their love language is, so that you can speak the same language. Because if you're not, all that loving you're doing is probably going unappreciated. So here's the question. Oh, wow. We'll have some couples therapy afterwards. Obviously, this is good. So here's the, here's the question. Here's the question. Um, this is great. Uh, Jeff and Kathy will be speaking to us later in the year, uh, marriage day, and they'll be speaking, and you should come. Um, what is God's love language? Now, someone this morning piped up all five. Well done. That's a great answer. But, but what's God's love language? According to this passage, we know what God's love language is. Have a look with me at John 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, God shows his love for us by giving. And what does he give? Not just a great sunset or, you know, the beautiful forest walk. That's not what he gives. He gives the most precious thing that he had to give, which is what? His son. God loves to give. God loves to give. And what he did was he gave us the most precious gift that he had to give. And we also see in this verse that if we believe in the Son, we will, be, we will not perish, but we'll have eternal life. So we see God's love language and we see the effects of his gift, which is that we will not perish, but have eternal life. How fantastic is that? Now, I, I want to suggest to you, lots of people know John 3.16. Who knew John 3.16 before they came tonight? In fact, if I asked you, many of you would be able to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one. Or maybe you can sing it. Has someone got a song that they can sing? A John 3.16 song? No, you don't? Oh, great. Well, I'll, we'll teach you one later. That's fantastic. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think if you know John 3.16, you need to know 17 and 18 because they'll help you understand it even better. Uh, I have on the screen here uh, one of my favorite helis- helicopters. Uh, I won't ask you to identify it but it is an Eris Patel Dauphin, which is fantastic. It's for, uh, they're out there for the United States Coast Guard. Again, one of my favourite uh, ways to dress up this particular helicopter. What is it out there doing? Uh, it is out there. I'm weird. I know. It's good. I'd just like to reveal that to you. Uh, what it's doing, it's out there looking for these guys to save them. And that is exactly what we see God is on about in verse 17. Have a look at how much we add to the beauty of John 3.16 when we read John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's incredibly important to me that we see that the mission of the son was to save. He came to save. He could have sent his son into the world to to tell us off, to condemn us. That could have been the reason that he came, to do it in person. We see he came to save and not to condemn, and I think that adds just the most beautiful additional color and light to John 3.16. Not only does God love the world, but he sent his son to save the world and not to condemn it. So when I wonder, God, what do you like at your heart? See, when we're really under the pump, when we're under pressure, we start to call to mind, what is God really like? And if you've seen um, Bruce Almighty, you know, smite me, you mighty smiter, or whatever it is. You know, it's that, it's that sense of, God, are you really for me? Do you really love me? What are you like? And here, we're told that God loves. Not only that he loves, he sent his son to save and not condemn. That's profoundly helpful for us when we're under pressure. But there is condemning in this passage. And it's heavy. And I can't read this passage without reading it to you. But I want you to see it's not just dark, it's light as well. But we won't see the love and we won't feel the salvation and we won't see the beauty of God's gift until we understand this. So we add to 16 and 17, verse 18. Have a look with me at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Do you see the weight of this? 
You see, we have the same note being struck. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That is a wonderful, wonderful truth. But there's a counter note. And so we see that belief can change everything. You can be saved if you believe. Whoever believes is not condemned. But there's the second side. And the second side says this. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We are condemned until we're saved. That is the state of humanity around us. That is our state before we came to trust in Jesus. And there aren't too many places that want to tell you that. Because it's a terrible truth, isn't it? But Jesus, the one who tells us this terrible truth, is the one who tells us the hope in the midst of it, isn't it? That if we believe, we will be saved. Jesus came because it was true, and he died to make it not true for you if you will believe in him. Can you see that? You you might wonder, why do you yell at the kid who's about to put their hand onto the hot stove? Why, Why do you yell at them? Parents, help me out here. Sorry? Because I need to stop you before you put your hand on, right? And maybe the kid falls on the ground and has a cry because they're scared. You yelled at me, Dad. This would be my son. You yelled at me, Dad. Why did you yell at me? Why did you raise your voice? I'm like, well, I could have quietly and politely told you not to place your hand on it, but you would have done it, and then you would have been burnt, and that would have been a whole different set of tears. And, and the reality is I'm not, I'm not upset if I speak strongly to you to save you from being burnt. And the love of God tells us this hard truth that we might be saved. That we might be saved. So what belief saves? What belief saves? Is it simply a set of magical words? I believe in Jesus. Good. You know, this is, this is kind of the classic counterpoint to the fact that we believe by, we're saved by faith. People say, well, if we're saved by faith, can't you just... You know, go on living your life until you're about to die. And then just before you die with your last breath, you say, I believe in you, Jesus. You laugh. I've literally had these conversations with actual humans, right? And they tell me, you know, you can't believe in all that yet. You have to work hard at being good enough for God. And the, the incredible news is that we're saved by faith, not by works. So then the counterpoint is to go, well, so you just say the magic words and you get out of jail free. No, that, that's not the case. And I want to take you to the Old Testament to show you why. Uh, does, anyone, does anyone know what this means? This, this, if I'm doing this, what does this mean? Yeah. Yeah, I can't hear you perfectly, sorry. It's not true, exactly. If I'm crossing my fingers, and I've got my fingers crossed behind my back, but I'm speaking to you like this, the way this bizarre weirdness works, my words uh, don't have to be true, because I've done this. So isn't that amazing, right? So it's the, I, anyway, I, I don't know why people do this. It's a thing, apparently. But, but here's the thing. You can, you can listen to my words, but if I'm doing this thing, they're not true. They don't match up with me internally. You're just getting the outside. And I, see, I want you to show, see a, a place in the Old Testament where God calls his people out on this. In, don't, don't, it's just one verse, so I'll read it to you. From Isaiah 29, there's this devastating declaration from God on his people. Here's what he says. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on mere human rules they have been taught. See, what's going on is there's a whole lot of mouthy religion, and there's no renewed heart. 
And God calls them out on them. He says, I see you play-acting religious people. And he says, I will not tolerate it. He says, what I'm looking for is much more than lips and not lives. If you've got lips but not lives, he says, I have nothing to do with you. You're not fooling anyone. You, you may have a whole lot of standing in the synagogue. You might be the most important person. Everyone thinks that you're incredibly respectable. But if your lips don't match up with your heart, God says, you're a fraud. You're practicing deceit. And so he speaks to them and says, I don't want magic words from you. I want a correlation between your lips and your life. That's what I'm looking for. And we're going to go to Romans, uh, the first reading that we had. If you can go to Romans, uh, it's after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after Acts, and then we get to the book of Romans. If someone's got Romans 10 for me and can call out the page number, that'd be great. <laughs> well done. If you have the large print, it's in page what? 11.35. And now we're properly confused. If you find Romans 10, that'd be brilliant. Thank you. I'll give you a moment to get there. What, what God is after is a correlation between lips and lives. Have a, have a listen to uh, what Paul is talking to the Romans about in verses 9 to 13. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ah, that's just magnificent, right? And so what's he saying? You will confess with your mouth. There are things that you will say with your mouth, but it must match your heart. So what's the best way I can show you your heart? Well, let's go for an ECG here. Here's the little thing that, that inside your heart. And what's that? You must believe in your hearts. So what do we confess with our mouths? We confess Jesus is Lord. And when we're doing that, we're saying Jesus is the highest authority. There is no one higher than Jesus in my life. He's the boss. He's the king. And in the day and age when this was happening, this would have been a highly uh, revolutionary thing to say. Because who was the king of the world if you lived in the time of Jesus? Caesar. So you would say, Caesar is Lord. And now here is Paul writing to people throughout, well, they're actually living in Rome, to say what you need to say is Jesus is Lord. If you put Jesus first, I can tell you, you better believe it because it might cost you your life in Rome. So you need to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you need to believe in your heart that Jesus is risen from the dead. You need to believe that Jesus was physically dead, was raised alive and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. If you believe that, you believe he paid the price for your sins and you believe you have a hope of eternal life. So that's what we need to do. Confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. So what have we learned? I want to show you that there's some things that we've learned about God and about people tonight. A God side and a humanity side. We've learned that God loves. And you might think that that's the most blah thing that we've learned tonight. Of course God loves. But you know there are other gods that don't love, that are cruel masters, that abandon you to your fate, that are demanding, that need constant satisfaction, that need endless sacrifice. Here's, here's what my God is like. 
He loves. And how do I know he loves? Well, he sent me his son. He seeks to save. He's a God who doesn't want to put you down, who does not want to see you condemned. He came to seek you and to save you. He gave his son to prove his love, and he offers eternal life to all of those who will trust in him by faith. What have we learned about humanity tonight? Well, oh, and God has a kingdom. What have we learned about humanity? This terrible truth that we stand together condemned, but can be saved through faith in Jesus and live forever. Finally, we've learned that God's the arbiter of that. God is the judge and he will look at our lips and our lives to work out if we're on board with Jesus. Well, does this mean that everyone will be saved? He goes on to say something about feet. Does anyone like their feet? Oh, yeah, you like your feet. Well, yeah, it's good. Uh, some people would say, I, I can't wear thongs, you know. I've got those really, I've got claws for there's a way that you can have beautiful feet, okay? Have a look with me here in Romans 10, verses 14 to 15. We can have beautiful feet. It says in verse 14, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Isn't this great? Those who bring good news have beautiful feet. And so I want to encourage you tonight, church, salvation comes through hearing and you can be a bearer of the good news, however unattractive your feet may be. They will be beautiful in God's sight if you bring good news. I want to tell you about a man who thought it was really important. So if we say that the world stands condemned until they believe, what would we do? The world stands condemned until they believe. There's a man called Jim Elliot. And I read about him in a book called Through Gates of Splendor, which was written by his wife, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. And he is totally hardcore. Uh, here's, here's what Jim Elliot had to say about the reason that you tell people far away. He says, missionaries are very human folk, just doing what they are asked. Simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Love it. A bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. He goes on to say, why would he travel away? He was an American guy, had a college education, all that sort of stuff, and he decided to leave that and to travel to Ecuador to reach a group of people who had never heard about Jesus. Here's what he said. Impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while the Chiquas perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. Boom. Thank you, Jim Elliot. So here he is. He went, traveled, traveled down to Ecuador, met up with a bunch of guys down there, learned the language of the Akua Indians, found a tribe that was uh, a tribe that were killing people. Figured these guys definitely haven't heard the gospel and is trying to work out how do I bring the gospel to a group of people who basically are estranged from the whole rest of a society. So what they did, they got this plane, they started dropping gifts to the people who they saw down there. They eventually landed on the beach, they set up a little house there and they started to make contact with this tribe. By the time they had five of them there, tragically on January the 8th, 1956, all five of them were killed. They travelled across the globe. They'd learnt the language. They had poured their hearts out to reach these people and they were all killed. And if this was a terrible story, the wonder of God is he never wastes anything. 
Two years later, his wife and his daughter were living in the village. This is a picture of the son of one of the men who was killed, whose picture you see there, who is, has his arm around one of the men who was in the tribe who killed his father because he's become a Christian, and together they travel the world talking about the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? You know, we've got friends, Howard and Michelle, in the Philippines who've done the same thing. There are people there who don't know Jesus. What are they doing? Taking beautiful feet to the Philippines. We have a plan for you to have beautiful feet here in Oran Park. And our plan involves this over here, connecting, caring, communicating, and leading people to commit. And we have some priorities coming up where we want to touch every home in Oran Park and we want to be sure to name Jesus. And I want to tell you some ways that we can do that. What do we expect to see? If as a church, we become a church that longs to give the message of new life, what will we see? We'll see households becoming Christians one person at a time. We will see each of us moving the people that we love one sea at a time further along. We will see patience and prayer because we believe God saves people. And we will see growth in our church. And that's what I want to see, absolutely. So what about right here? Well, we must respond to this great news that we have. And so I want to ask you, are you willing to invite the people that you're praying for to join us over Christmas? Some of you have a 316441 card. Don't worry about it if you're new with us. It's a card where we write down the names of people we're praying for who we love. What I want to say to you, church, will you invite them to join us for Christmas? What have you got to lose? If this is the message, what have you got to lose? We must be invitational. And if you're not ready to do much of the communicating, bring them along. Guess who will do the communicating? I will. And so you can just bring them along and I'll do all the communicating and then you can say afterwards, what did you make of that? It'll be great. I'd love to do it. Bring them along. I will talk to them about Jesus for you. Um, are you willing to communicate Jesus in your social media and Christmas cards this year? Don't just wish people a Merry Christmas, although that's fine. Wish them a Merry Christmas. Tell them Jesus is the reason for the season. If they don't like it, go to work on the 25th. No, that's a bit aggressive, perhaps. But, uh, but here's the thing. Jesus is the reason for the season. There's no mystery. It's Jesus, right? We need to name Jesus. We need to actually say it's Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem. Name Jesus. Okay, don't be afraid to name Jesus this Christmas. So we must name Jesus. We might want to do some, some crazy stuff. I've got a group of people who I'm excited about who are going to go and invite our suburb to carols and Christmas services. We're going to go and knock on doors and say, hey, Christmas is happening. Do you want to come and join us? It's really good. It's all about Jesus. Why don't you come and join us? Who would like to do that with me? Write it down your Karen Connect card and I'll be in touch with you. Uh, it's going to be great. You'll like it. Uh, here's, the, uh, here's the challenge from our atheist uh, magician that we started with. And I want you to feel the weight of this. How much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? Not to share the message of new life? How much do you have to hate them if you believe it's true? Not to tell it. Whatever you do, we cannot be silent. We cannot be silent. I asked Daniel to pray for us to be a church that speaks of Jesus. Let's pray with him. Fantastic. Amen. <laughs> Um, it's uh, time for Q&A. So if you have any questions, I'm happy to take them. Uh, you can be 
uh, wide-ranging if you'd like. You can ask me to clarify anything that I've said there. Um, that'd be great. Has anyone got a question? Yeah, great. I'll do my own microphone running tonight. That's great. Thank you. Um, I'm very curious about this bronze snake. Yes. Um, like, you probably might not know the answer. Why do you think a snake? Wouldn't it have been an unclean animal? That's, or... such, a, that's such an excellent question. Um, why, why not make it a cross and really prefigure Jesus before? That would be really great. So what I want you to do, Moses, is make a bronze shape with a thing going and make it a cross that's lifted up. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Um, I honestly have no idea. And uh, it's, it's, really, it's really intriguing because uh, what happens is Israel ends up turning the snake into an idol. And later on, they're actually asked to destroy the snake because they've held on to it and they've started to worship it. Why on earth did God do that? I have no idea at all. And I don't think the Bible's pleased to tell me other than it was something that uh, God suggested, if you do that, you will live. And so it's purely faith. It's purely faith. Uh, incidentally, for those of you who don't know, the medical symbol, which is a pole with a snake wrapped around it, comes from there. It comes from Moses in this particular story. Um, but why it's a snake? I don't know. Snakes were biting them. Make a bronze snake. Look at the snake. I, I think, honestly think the base lesson is look and live is setting you up for Jesus and Moses' weirdness, honestly, all that way back then, is actually so that when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he can refer back to that, which is pretty awesome because that's part of God's amazing plan. Yeah, that's a great question, though, and I'd love to have a more satisfying answer, but there you go. Uh, next question? Yeah, go, Doug. The Nicodemus that came to Jesus at night, is that the same Nicodemus later in the Gospels who helped Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus' body? There's a correlation of names that would lead me to suspect that that's the case. To say definitively it was, I don't know. I think it says in one of the Gospels that it was, and I just can't think of the top of my head. I think it says something like, this is the same one who came to Jesus at night. Has anyone got it? Have a look up. I think it'll be in John. John, that'd be my guess. Have a look in John, and you'll probably be able to, to find it. But it's a good question, mate, and my, my gut instinct, without having to find the verse, is the answer is yes. Is that all right? If anyone finds it later, you can tell us. But I, th I think the answer is yes. Which is amazing, isn't it? Because how far does he come? You must be born again. You're Israel's teacher, and you don't know this, and then he's one of the people who helps bury Jesus. Praise God for his mercy. We love those transformations, don't they? John 7.50. Okay. Seven sounds a little bit early. So Nicodemus might be in there, but the, the bit where he's moving the body will be later. 19. There we go. Fantastic. Signed and sealed. Well done. New life at night. You are excellent. You got a question, Alec? Um, just here, Jeff. I know that the Pharisees end up being the um, whipping the bad boys guys. for all bad things yeah. in the Gospels, but he, he comes along at night and he actually turns up and he, he says, we know that you're a teacher who's mm. come from God for no one can perform the signs. Is he just leading up a faction or do you think there was a moment there where the Pharisees could have turned out okay? That's such an excellent question, mate. The, the thing that we miss about the Pharisees, Jesus lays into them because they end up being against him. I, I think they were the most 
God-fearing, spiritually hungry people in Israel, probably. They they ended up acting it out in a really unhelpful way. I think I've told you guys before, but my understanding is the Pharisees were under the belief that if they could have one day of perfect obedience, the Messiah would come. Right? So if you can have in Israel one day of perfect obedience to the law, then the Messiah will come. So why do I want to stop Jesus eating on the Sabbath? You're mucking up today, Jesus. Do you understand? We're hungry for the, for the kingdom to come. And so your sinfulness, Jesus, your breaking of the laws, is actually messing up our attempt at a perfect day. Now, it's, it's horribly naive because it's, we deal with sinful people, right? But so, yes, could they have been the good guys in another parallel universe? I think so. Yeah, and, and when it says here that we know, I think that's just acknowledging what, what was just inescapable. Healing and wholeness only comes from God. Driving out demons, you can drive out a demon with another demon if you find a more powerful demon, but then you're left with demon possession. When you're left with clarity and right-mindedness, that's only the hand of God. And that's why Jesus says the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing, I think. Anyway, now I've really taken us on a, on a side part. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think it's a great question. And my, my understanding would be they saw an undeniable work of God and there was more than one. I think you're right. Anne, you got a question? Your Annie, you slaughtered this following on from the other snake question. Oh, great. I did so well with that one. <laughs> Give me another one. Yeah. So back in Exodus 4. Yes. Um, I've never thought about this before, but is there any connection between the fact that when Moses doesn't want to go, God tells him, and once again it's a snake, and the, yeah. reason, and the reason is that they might... It's like, I mean, would Moses have remembered, would the people have... Look, it's incredible. <laughs> it's a really interesting correlation, isn't it? So um, uh, Moses uh, gets the sign of a staff that can turn into a snake. He can throw it on the ground and it'll transform into a snake in front of Pharaoh. And then he can pick it up and it becomes a staff again. It's supposed to be an awesome sign that Pharaoh should believe that Moses is speaking on God's behalf. Gee, I don't know. I, you, you could make a really long boat. I don't, I'm not going to go for it. On the basis that... Um, nowhere in Scripture tells me that that's the link, but I think it's a good thought. No, exactly, yeah. So I would say that's a brilliant illustration for Pharaoh, and it's a great day in the desert, and it's a brilliant conversation with Nicodemus, but I'm not sure I'd run a thread between all three. But that's great. It's good thinking, though, and that's that's another place that snakes turn up, which is odd because we all know where they first turn up, and that didn't work out very well for humanity. Okay, that might be the... Oh, one more. Yep, go, Ali. And then we'll have to stop because we're getting out of hand and we'll, we'll chat over supper or something. Go, Ali. Um, so verse 11. Of John chapter of John 3. John 3. Yes. Um, Jesus says, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. Yes. Who is the plural? Yeah, thank you so much. I was trying to avoid that. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, look, I, so there's, there's, there's people who say that, um, that Jesus speaks with the royal we. Um, and so... Um, uh, that he's, he, because he's uh, speaking on, on behalf of God, there's always a plural in what he has to say. So it's, it's, it's a Trinity illusion, the we. The, the alternate is, uh, my disciples and I always speak in this way. I'd love to think that it's the we is the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, that that's the we. We haven't really seen the, the disciples do anything particularly spectacular in, um, in John's Gospel up to this point. So it's pretty bold if it's him and the disciples. So I'm going to go towards 
the end that it's probably Jesus speaking on behalf of his father. As he'll go later on in John 14, 15, and 16, he says, when I speak, you hear the words of my father. And so we speak is just Jesus' natural way of speaking. I'm always speaking in accord with my father. 